One thing I learned when we were missionaries in Mexico is that you never forget the first time you go to prison. It is an indelible experience. Now, thankfully, I wasn't in prison to stay. Well, I was, but only for a very short time. What happened in our church in Mexico, a good man who had walked faithfully with the Lord got sideways with God and grew very contemptuous of Him and sort of defied God and dared God to correct him, and God did. And the way he did that is, uh, one of the many things he did is my friend, is a dear friend who I grew up with, was unjustly accused of a very serious crime he didn't commit. And in the Mexican system, it's the reverse of ours. The legal system in Mexico considers you guilty until you're proven innocent. So you're invited from prison, if you have the misfortune of going there, to work through your lawyer on the outside to get you out. Very, very difficult position for him to be in. And visitation was not very good. I would go and talk through some really dirty, thick plastic security glass through a, on a phone that didn't particularly work, and they would cut us off after three minutes, and it took about an hour to get out there. And I grew weary of that and looked for the next level of visitation, and I was surprised to find that I could get, do a background check and get permission to go all the way in. And again, the Mexican prison system is different. You, there are no uniforms on the prisoners. You largely depend on your family for your food and clothing. So depending on who you are and how much your family cares, you might be dressed in rags or you might look really sharp. There's no way of knowing who's who, which you can begin to understand puts me in an awkward position if I'm just walking in, right? What they did was, first of all, they took a man about three times my size, if you can believe that, and he welcomed me into a little room about the size of a New York telephone booth, put me flat against the wall, and made quite sure that nothing on my person was contraband to go inside that prison. Once that was done, since they couldn't tell us apart, he would take my left hand and dip it in neon yellow ink. And that's what I would wave at the guard when I needed to get out, okay? And it was intense. It was a state prison. It wasn't just jail, it was prison. So there were all kinds of layers of security, including an underground tunnel that, I don't know, may have been 100 yards long with a corkscrew staircase on either end. It took a long time to get inside this thing. And there were bars and gates and guards, and every time they opened a layer and locked it behind me, I could feel my blood pressure rising. In this particular prison, and my friend was caught in the middle of it, drug deliveries were a regular part of prison life. And occasionally, the system would actually work and keep the drugs out of prison, which would occasion riots. And if, things, if the system was working normally, you could walk through the general population and see people that were deeply, deeply intoxicated with drugs, some of them nearly to the point of death. It was just the Wild West. And the other thing I learned about prison is my only experience of joy in that whole time of being in prison, can you guess when I felt joy? When I got out, exactly right. As they started unlocking the gates and I kept waving my yellow hand, every time they opened another layer and walked me out, I could feel myself returning to normalcy. My heart rate dropped. 
started to breathe deeply again. The sun suddenly seemed to come out. I could hear the birds singing again. It was wonderful. There was nothing in that whole experience and all the times I went there that made me think that anybody could be happy in prison. But Paul was. Today we're beginning a journey through the biblical book of Philippians, which is what Bible scholars call a prison epistle. And that sounds far more complicated than it is. That just means that it's a personal letter written from prison. And my first question as I started studying this book again was this, what in the world could motivate a man to sing for joy in prison? Paul's situation wasn't the North American continent in the 20th century. Paul was shackled most likely inside a Roman prison. Paul went to prison so often and took so many beatings that Bible students aren't even exactly sure what prison he was in when he wrote this. But as we start reading this letter that he wrote to an ordinary local church, you're going to see that he is quite literally bursting for joy. And what I, because I read through Philippians over and over again, I also discovered that not only is a prisoner who isn't on his way out, who knows that his life is fragile, and he may, in fact, he's not sure if he'll ever leave. I also asked myself this question, what is it about this church that would make God want to write that church's story? Because that's what we're dealing with here. We're dealing with a man who is singing for joy in prison, and we're also dealing with a church that behaved in such a way that God in His sovereign choice said, I need to tell this church a story. I need to not only tell how they got started, I also need to tell how they lived and what made Paul so incredibly happy. See, the Philippian church didn't start from much. On one of his missionary journeys, Paul had a vision that's where God was compelling him to go to a different region. And Paul, for the first time in his missionary life, went to Europe. He went to the city of Philippi, and most of us don't remember our history, but if you, perhaps you do, if your teacher spent time on the Roman Empire, you may remember the Battle of Philippi. It was in this city that the Roman Republic ended and the glorious Roman Empire started. Because this city had been started with former Roman soldiers, they had special place and special status. As far as the empire was concerned, people who lived in Philippi were as good as Roman citizens, and they could live with the same exemptions and privileges and blessings as if they were living in Rome itself. They were proud of that status, and it was a thoroughly, thoroughly Greco-Roman city. There wasn't much Jewishness in it, in fact. When Paul went into a new city, his custom was to find the Jewish synagogue because he knew there that people would be reading the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures. And Paul knew he could get traction by pointing to the dozens of prophecies that detailed the life of Jesus, who had just died some years earlier. And he knew that from there, some people would make the connection as he did one day when he met Jesus and embraced Jesus as their Messiah. But Paul didn't find a synagogue. All Paul could find in Philippi was a group of women worshiping by a river. And from that small beginning, Paul, we're told in Acts 16, presented the good news of Jesus and a local businesswoman named Lydia. The text is really specific. Remember, I've been telling you when you're reading a Bible story, the details in that story are like the director of a movie slowing down to make sure that you catch something. 
In Acts 16, it says that God opened the heart of Lydia. The good news of Jesus was presented to her, and God personally worked in her life as maybe he's worked in yours and said, what you're hearing about Jesus is the truth. Embrace that. Believe that. She did, and on a riverbank with just a few women, the beginnings of a church was born. The Philippian church initially probably met in Philippians in, in Lydia's house, which probably was a spacious place because she seems to, do a very, seems to be a successful businesswoman. This being Paul, as he went through the city, he then immediately encountered a demon-possessed girl, and he set her free in the name of Jesus, and that enraged everybody. Paul ended up in court, and if you'll read in Acts 16, you can see a scene that if it were a YouTube video would go viral today because the mob attacked Paul and Silas. They tore their garments off of them and between the crowd and a judicial beating, they were severely wounded and beaten down and locked in prison. It was there that there was a miraculous God-ordained earthquake that broke the prison open and gave Paul the ability to run for it, but he didn't. The Philippian jailer who would have been executed for his failure to keep those Roman prisoners was so shaken and moved by the fact that he was going to get his life back and these men, for whatever reason, had decided not to run. He asked them the most important question anybody could ask. They said, what must I do to be saved? And Paul gave him the simple good news of Jesus. He said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. That was the beginning of the Philippian church. Not much. And years later, because Paul is going everywhere that God directs him, telling people about Jesus, Paul ends up in prison again, and this time there's no earthquake. This time he's really suffering for it and suffering through it, and God used Paul to write that church's story. Look with me in Philippians chapter 1. It says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, literally slaves, That's how Paul esteemed himself, no agenda of his own, no self-direction. Paul and Timothy, servants or slaves of Christ Jesus, here's the church. To all the saints in Christ Jesus who were at Philippi, believe it or not, no matter your spirit, how you feel about your spiritual condition and identity, if you have trusted Jesus as your Savior, the Bible gives you this glorious title, calls you a saint doesn't mean you're sinless. It means that you're saved and you're set apart for God, that you belong to Him, that you're not your own anymore, that He's going to be your Savior. He's going to grow you. He's going to perfect you. That's who you are now. So he's referring to the ordinary membership of that church, to all the saints who were in Christ Jesus, who were at Philippi, with the overseers and the deacons. He thinks of the pastors and he thinks of the deacons of that church. As Paul is writing them, They stand, and I'll show you why in a minute, in a very special place, in a very special relationship with him, and as he's writing the letter, he thinks across the church, and different people and positions and influences come to his mind. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how ancient letters were written. You would identify yourself as the writer, you would mention the person who is supposed to receive the letter, and then you would give them a greeting. I kind of sometimes still wish we did this. Have you ever had to look at the last page of a letter to find out who's writing it? They didn't bother with that. They, uh, if you think about it, it's a little bit like email. You know, on the front side, who's writing you, right? 
He's greeting them, the whole church, and here is what Paul is going to say about this ordinary church with a small beginning. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Well, that's, that impresses me. Every time Paul thinks of this little church, what does he do? He thanks God for them. Is there anybody in your life that thanks God for you every time they think about you? I'm not sure I have even one person in my life like that. My mother prays for me, I know, but I'm pretty sure she's prayed against me a couple times too. <laughs> Get my stupid ideas out of my head. These are ordinary people in a, in a difficult place with people who don't like them for their new faith in Jesus, who consider themselves their enemies. But Paul thinks much of them. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Look how inclusive, look how emphatic and big this language is. Always, in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. So not only does he thank God for them, every time he thinks of them, he thinks of them with joy. I know I don't have anybody in my life like that. I've caused all kinds of emotions in people's lives, including sadness, regret, anger, confusion, not Paul. Every time he thinks of this ordinary group of believers with ordinary pastors, overseers, with people from that church who have been called as deacons to serve the others, every time he thinks of them, he thanks God for them and he prays with them with joy. And here's the reason why. Because of your partnership in the gospel. That's the heart of it. Partnership in the gospel really is the phrase that controls this whole letter. That's why Paul's bursting with joy. That's why God wrote their story, because the Philippian church was a church that worked together to spread the good news of Jesus. That's what it means to be partners in the gospel. See, gospel is not just a musical genre. Gospel means good news. In other words, when you're sharing the gospel, you're telling someone the good news about a person. You're not delivering a worldview. You're not delivering a code of conduct. You are giving witness. You are giving testimony. You are telling the story and the reality of a living person named Jesus who is the Savior, the Rescuer. The one who paid for sin and brings people into God's family. And the Philippian church was a church that partnered with Paul. Now, what's a partner? A partner is someone who makes a sacrifice with others for a common vision. People have a common vision. They share an idea. They are committed to the same idea of what the future should look like, and they come together. They link hands. They join resources. They rearrange schedules. They are mutually committed to make sure that that future comes into reality. There's a big difference between a partner and a customer. And it's not always bad to be a customer. I'm a customer in almost all of my dealings. For instance, I am a frequent customer of Target. Okay? I think the place is clean. I think the prices are good. I think almost everybody except for this one guy there in, uh, <laughs> on, on Brookhurst and Adams, I think most of the staff is nice except for that one guy. And I, 
I go and I give them my money and they give me my stuff and I walk out. That's a customer transaction. Do you know how many times I've agonized about Target's future as a company? Zero. This without the circle around it. At no point in my life have I ever gone home and thought to myself, I wonder how their stock is doing today. I wonder what keeps the CEO at night. I heard they closed a bunch of stores in Canada. I hope that doesn't affect us here in Southern California. Why? Because I'm a customer. One of the deformities of church, and it happened in the Philippian church. Paul's going to talk about that later. It's not an American invention, but the American church has put that deformity on steroids and made it grow is that the American congregation with its saints and its elders or overseers and its deacons invite people to be customers rather than partners. And it's totally foreign to God's idea of what the church is. See, a customer is always looking for his own advantage. He's willing to make some sacrifices as long as he receives a certain kind of service or good in return. But when that service or good is not available, he'll very quickly switch. If Walmart were somehow miraculously transformed into a place that was clean and nice and affordable, I'd go back. But I only go to Walmart when I have no choice. I'd much rather go to Target. I'm a customer. My grandpa's generation viewed all kinds of things, including purchases, differently. My grandpa was a World War II veteran. He was on a destroyer in the South Pacific. So when I pulled up to his house in a Volkswagen... I know, right? You saw it. I didn't. (laughs) He walked out, looked at that actually not very good golf and said, son, he's from Texas, what are you doing in a German car? And I said, grandpa, you're totally right. It's been a nothing but trouble. Transmission blew out. This car has been a mess. Next time I'm buying, can you guess? A Honda. Did I mention the destroyer in the South Pacific? His face clouded over. He harumphed. He was a pastor, and pastors aren't supposed to cuss, so he just went straight back into the house and left me in front of the German car going, what in... Oh. And I gave him a few minutes before I went into the house. See, our view was different. Because of what his life had been, he viewed buying a Cadillac that was going to break down as a partnership of some sense. My life was very different from his. I didn't have those loyalties. I was just a customer. And if Honda starts building lousy cars, if Camry start being lousy, in that moment I'll make the switch because I'm a customer. Here's the joy of this letter. Paul is in prison with absolutely nothing on earth to be thankful for, but bursting with joy and writing them as you're going to see a love letter. He is so excited that he is actually going to call God as his witness because he wants them, he wants the Philippians to believe and understand how very much he loves them and this is the only reason because they have been his partners in the gospel. They heard the good news of Jesus and immediately it had such a transforming effect on their lives that they ordered their lives and their budgets and their finances and their relationships and they didn't esteem the cost as too high. They did what it took to make sure that other people knew about Jesus. 
This is an extraordinary letter. Look at verse 5. He says, I'm all, uh, verse 3, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel. Here's a big phrase, from the first day until now. So, when did the Philippian believers start ordering their lives and everything they had to make sure that other people heard the good news? From the first day they heard it. Can I tell you something else we do in church and church culture? We'll take someone who moves from darkness into the light of Jesus and they know that they're saved and it makes a huge difference on the inside and then we train the joy right out of them. And rather than let God work and let them be excited and tell everybody as best they can about this extraordinary real person named Jesus Christ who saved them, we said, now hold on, don't get too excited now. Have you ever told a Christian that? You tell him he's weird, you insinuate that he's weird because he's thrilled about Jesus and you just knock the joy right out of his life. And he becomes as mundane and sober-faced and serious as everybody else. You train or educate the joy out of them. Now listen, I'm not opposed to training and education. I'm on both sides of it. I'm still in school and I sometimes teach school. But Paul says what God did in the Philippians is from the first day they heard it, they linked arms and checkbooks with Paul. They sent, as the letter unfolds, you're going to find out they sent him money. It's very obvious that the prayers flowed both ways. They even sent him a person in prison to be Paul's advocate and helper and make sure that he was okay. That man nearly died in the process. And one of the reasons of this letter is to tell them and reassure them that their friend Epaphroditus is okay and how grateful Paul is that Epaphroditus made it with the money to Paul's prison so that Paul would be provided for. I mean, it's an extraordinary letter. It's bursting with joy. And the reason is that this ordinary church started on a riverbank, partnered together for the gospel. Let me tell you what happens when a church works together to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. First of all, verse 6 tells us this, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Now, that's a very familiar verse for most Christians. If you're new to the church, if you're new to the faith, if you're just investigating this, forgive a little insider language, but we used to have a chorus about this verse, right? I think Steve Green sang it. Does that sound familiar? If you're under 30, you're going, what? You lost me. I know. I'm sorry. Okay? But this verse is so famous that Christians even sing about it. Can I point out to you the bigger context? The reason Paul is sure that God is at work in these ordinary people's lives and he is sure that he's going to continue to put the finishing touches on the good work he started is this. From the day they heard the gospel, they linked arms to make sure that other people heard it too. The way we sometimes deform that verse is you've said the right thing and said the right prayer, so I'm sure you're saved. Paul said, no, what gives me that confidence is you're partnering with me. You don't view yourself as a customer. You're not a client. You're not a consumer. You're a partner. We're in this together. And it shows when we partner together for the gospel, it shows that God is at work among us. Verse 7, look at the intensity here. 
it is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers with me of grace both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. What that means is when you understand how much Jesus matters and the gospel has its actual effect in your life and you get excited about joining lives and resources with other people to make sure that others can hear about Jesus too, it gives you a stake in what it costs to reach people for Christ. You have some skin in the game, my grandpa would say. See, the joy didn't get trained out of this man. Forgive me if, if you've heard this story before. If you've been attending here for years, you have. But our family on both sides were straight-out pagans. No concern for God at all on both sides of the family. God did some dramatic things, including having one man killed in front of the worst unbeliever in our whole family. My great-grandpa was an atheist. And seeing a plane crash right in front of him, he demanded to know why God would kill that man, a good man, and not him. And the answer he got was because he was ready to go meet the Lord, and you're not, Clint. That's what God did on one side of the family. On the other, my grandpa, the pastor, the sailor, he went into the Navy with all kinds of problems. He was a patriotic sign-up who lied to get in, lied about his age. And went to war and got far more than he bargained for and carried some internal wounds with him because of that. And from that emerged alcoholism and violence and abuse and all kinds of wickedness. But then M.O. Garner met Jesus and was so absolutely overwhelmed at the reality that Jesus loved him, had died for him, and saved him that he started preaching immediately. So much so that an early sermon featured the book of Job. Because he'd never been to church and had never heard the book of Job pronounced out loud. An early gospel sermon featured Jesus arrested, crucified, and risen again all in the Garden of Gethsemane. He knew the gospel, but he hadn't read it carefully enough to put the timeline together. He thought it all ended in the Garden of Gethsemane. And it doesn't, by the way. But he knew this. He knew that Jesus had saved him. And he immediately took a stake in making sure that people like himself had a chance to hear about Jesus just as he had. What I've noticed in my years of following Jesus, because that's how the gospel intersected our family, so by the time my dad was born into that house, he was the baby of three and the first one born into a Christian home. So I've had a front row, literally a high chair seat from the beginning to see what it makes, what sort of traits make a difference in people following Jesus for life. Those who partner together with Christ to make sure that people hear about Jesus, those are the ones that have joy that doesn't go away. They sign up as partners, not as clients, not as consumers, not as customers, and they take a stake in whatever it costs. And that's what Paul was referring to here. He says, you're with me, you're partakers with me of grace in every circumstance, in my imprisonment and in the defense and the confirmation of the gospel. What those words mean is this, you're with me when I go to prison, 
You're with me when I'm defending the gospel, and you're with me when the gospel is being confirmed by saving other people. In other words, whether the gospel costs me prison or we're in a good season where people are being saved and baptized and we see the difference being made, you are with me because we're together, we're partners. And this story, God's story, is written through this little church as a model and an example of an ordinary church that, as you're going to see, has its troubles, has its fights, have people get separated emotionally and have difficulties together. It's a continual appeal to stay together because this is the cause that matters. And the only thing that's strong enough to hold our church together is a common love for Jesus when we each take a stake in what it costs to reach people with his message. Look how intense this letter is. Verse 8. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. There it is. Paul says what has caused all this is your love. You love Jesus and you love me, and my prayer for you is that you will continue to grow in that love, that you'll learn more and you'll discern more, that you'll make better choices, verse 10, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. As you continue to grow in love for Jesus Christ, you're going to be perfected. Your discipleship, your likeness to Christ is going to continue to grow. Listen, there isn't human cleverness enough to motivate you to give your life to the gospel if you don't love Jesus. That's the key. Paul says what made the difference is you met him and you loved him and you've proven it. I see him working in your life because as soon as you heard about Jesus, you became my partners in telling other people about about him. You've stayed faithful and you've remained my partners through everything that the gospel has cost us both. So what I'm praying for now is that your love will continue to grow so that at the end of your life you'll be pure and blameless when you stand before Christ. Pure and blameless for the day of Christ, verse 11, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. What's happening here? When ordinary Christians and normal churches like ours, because we're a normal church, nothing super flashy, fancy, nothing exceptional about us. What's exceptional is our Savior. He's extraordinary. We're just ordinary people, but He loves us enough to make us and call us saints, to organize us together as His body. And when we partner together, to make sure that the world knows about him, it connects us heart to heart. That's what you're reading in this Philippian letter. That's why this letter is so different from all the others. That's why the elders and the deacons in this letter alone are mentioned. Paul is close to them with what little time they've spent together because they, and apparently they alone, of all the places that Paul has been and all the churches that have sprung up around his ministry, loved Jesus so much that they became partners together and partners with him and stuck with it. Let me make it as personal as I can. Crosspoint, this has to be the year that the arrows and the energy and the power of this church, that the arrows turn out. 
when I came as your pastor for good reasons, because it needed to happen, a lot of our energy, a lot of our ministry and service and love had to flow in. But you can see that it is not God's design, not even from the first day of a church's life, that all the energy be directed inward. We're a family. We're a body. We're a building. Of course, there is love and energy flowing inward. We saw that just yesterday as church family came alongside church family in a time of loss. The energy has to flow in, but partnership for the gospel means that the arrows point out. What does that look like? That means that you're not numb to people in your own life who don't know Jesus yet. I can trace pretty reliably how much I love the Lord with how much I actually care to make the sacrifice so that other people can meet Him too. What that means is, in Paul's life, Paul was a joyful person, but if you continue to read all of his letters, he walked around every day in his world with a joyful but broken heart because he knew he had a great Savior, but he grieved for the many who did not. So you have friends and family who don't know the Lord, for whom you are not absolutely certain. You don't see God's good work in them. You're not sure that God is working in them and that He will bring that work to completion. If you have friends and family and people in your circle that you're not absolutely certain know the Lord, the arrows moving outward, partnering for the gospel means that you care about them. And you pray for them and you plead to God with them and you order your life in such a way that you give them a clear picture of what a, dif- what a difference Jesus has made. And when you stumble and blow it and make them disbelieve the good news... You own it and apologize and get right back to following Jesus so that they can see Him as the wonderful Savior He is. It means that your time and your money and your talents are not given in bits and pieces as is convenient. It means that you start with commitment and you say to yourself, what matters to me is joining hands with other people, all of us according to our temperament and gift and spiritual maturity, but united in this one cause. Our community and the world need to know about this Jesus. And when people come together like that, God literally writes a story about it. He makes a man in prison burst for joy because here are some ordinary Christians that get it. And I cannot begin to tell you, as God has worked in our church and grown us and made us healthier spiritually, how grateful I am sometimes to the point of tears when I see you making that transformation from a mere Christian customer to a partner who will order life and energy and battle even through sickness and disappointment and discouragement and fights with other Christians who aren't always awesome, let's be honest. But you put the cause and you put the person of Christ ahead of your feelings and you soldier through because what matters is getting the good news out. That's why we're here, to make the arrows point out. This is an embassy, not a club. We're partners, not customers who agree that this is a good place to get ourselves, our needs served. In this year... If you will be honest with God, beginning at the smallest level, your family and your circle of friends, and then move it out to join forces and finances with other people in this church 
so that others may be able to reach those that are not in your circle, there is literally no telling what God will be pleased to do through this church. This baptistry could stay filled all the time because people would so routinely being saved and baptized as they were in the book of Acts. You may see prayers that you've offered for years about friends and family. You've opened up your heart to a few others maybe in your small group and prayer unites around that person and your mom gets saved. Your kid comes back to the Lord. Your coworker, who's just such a hard-bitten, secular, want-to-do-nothing-with-Jesus, warms up, and over the process of time, God opens his heart, as he did Lydia's. And at the end of the year, you're rejoicing that this is not an antagonist. This is a fellow Christian and a partner who's excited to tell his family, too. That's exactly what happened in Philippi, by God's grace. If we'll stay humble and ask God for his blessing, it can happen here, too. And the arrows can point out. That's my prayer. That's my plea. That's the burden of Philippians. Cross point, we're at our best when we work together to share the good news of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, give us a moment with you to be honest with you. Could I ask you in prayer to go to the Lord and just ask him to evaluate your level of partnership. Listen, if you're here for a week or two, I'm, I'm not actually addressing you right now. I'm talking to people who aren't looking for different churches. You're not rotating between two or three. You're not just checking us out. You know God wants you here. If God has you here, He wants you to be a partner here. To join what you have with the prayers and the giving and the service and the love and the care and the witness of others so that people all over can be saved. That's what he wants. He wants us to unite us together as partners, not congregants, not customers. So could I give you a minute to talk to Jesus about your level of partnership? And ask him to, take the ne- ask him to give you the grace and the courage to take the next step. Start with your own circle, your family, your friends. How much do you care about them? Who's praying with you for them? Lord, make us partners for the gospel. Unite our hearts and our hands so that we will strive together for the good news of Jesus Christ. I know it's a process, Lord, and I love and I respect the process, but I pray that you would move us along in following you so that consumerism and getting what's mine would less and less be a part of our thinking and more and more we would be committed to loving you. Let our love grow, Lord, in knowledge and discernment so that you may find us doing exactly what you want, pure and blameless, on the day of Christ. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.